want to welcome everybody to another episode of You and the Law Podcast Show. I'm one of the co-hosts of the show, Virgil Green. And I've got to introduce, as always, the bearded guy that sits, sits next to me, who goes by the name of Chief Swaggy, Swaggy One, the Beast Man. That's me, man. That's me. How, What's going on, how, man? How, how, how you got the name, you know, the beast, I, I just don't know, man. I think everybody out there, even our guests, is going to probably want to know where did this swaggy one come from? I mean, dude, when you're charismatic and and, and confident, man, it just happens, bro. Uh, well, hey, you know bro, what? Hey, Bert, hey, Bert, but though, before we get started, man, a very close friend of mine this week, uh, a retired officer from Arlington, Texas, uh, uh, Officer Sylvester Brown lost his wife. Uh, of, of 32 years, man. Oh, uh, wow. Shonda. Okay. Yeah, uh, unexpectedly. So I just wanted to reach out to uh, Sylvester and his family, his daughter, Bria, and uh, Brie, and uh, just uh, keep them in your prayers. Yeah, definitely condolences to the family. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, this is uh, our second episode of uh, Black History Month, and uh, we finally have got a guest on who is known uh, throughout the California area. And uh, so we are definitely honored to to have her on. And she's looking like, oh, you're talking about me? Yes, we're talking about about the retired assistant chief Reddick from the uh, California Highway Patrol, CHP. So thank you for coming on in, in uh, the podcast and, and joining us. And Keith, I have to say, I reached out to her, followed her on LinkedIn and reached out to her and she has been nice every single time that I've messaged her. She's re- replied back and I asked her if she'd come on the podcast and here we are. So we definitely want to thank you for taking some time out of your busy schedule to come on in and uh, uh, tell us about who you are, where you're from, how you got to where you are. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And, um, you know, I, I appreciate the spirit of your podcast. Um, because, you know, there's a lot of requests that come in and, uh, I love that you guys are just very authentic. Um, I love the, I love the kindness in how thoughtful and respectful we are when we have these conversations, especially in your podcast. I took time to listen to a couple before and, you know, in uh, full transparency, I was like, okay, what do they ask me to do? What podcast is this? And so I had to like research a little bit and I just appreciate that because sometimes that level of um, consideration is not placed into podcasts because I think sometimes those intents, they have a different agenda sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. So thank you. thank you for that. And the fact that, you know, um, you guys are in uh, law enforcement as well gives me a sense of, I think, psychological safety and security um, that you're not going to come for me in some crazy questions because I've been on a podcast or two where it's almost like being in a media inter- interview and I have to navigate how I'm going to respond because I want to be respectful of the fact that I am retired, but because I'm retired doesn't mean I'm going to trash <laughs> my past organization or any other organization. So, um, you know, thank you for that. Well, thank, so, you for, um, thank you for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things that we try to do since we started this podcast, which we're coming up on year four, we actually started this back uh, at the height of the pandemic. And uh, 
I don't think we envisioned that we would be doing this this long. And so it's good to know that you recognize it and others recognize just how authentic uh, our podcast show is and that we have some serious conversations about what's going on in policing in America, uh, what what's good and what's bad. And uh, so I think that's why we have such a the following that we have. And even surprises us when our podcasts are picked up on other platforms that are typically you probably wouldn't expect some of those shows to be picked up, but they but they are being picked up. And and so, you know, it's good, just good to have that conversation. I think we need more of that if we're going to change anything in policing. We, we definitely need to have that and we have to keep our, an open mind and we have to have a different way of thinking. And so occasionally, not all the time, we can get into a conversation that is um, a little heated and we can see things from different perspectives, but we should have enough respect for each other to um, value another person's perspective. We don't necessarily have to agree with it, but there could be some value and utility if we just took a moment and saw it from somebody else's perspective to see what we can do to make those changes versus we all have that same big um, you know, group think. And that's a problem sometimes that we can have um, when we're in the con construct of law enforcement, um, especially depending on where we are in our career, um, how satisfied we are in our job, um, how happy we are with our management or supervision or executive leaders or politics or the community, it can impact maybe in the moment how we are responding to something when in actuality, if we had a reflection that was outside of the moment we're in, it might look a lot different. And so we have to kind of, you know, learn how to manage our emotions when we're, you know, having these conversations. Yeah. Chief, Chief, am I hearing you say that, um, these type of conversations and networking and scenarios and being a student of the profession helps us prepare for those type of situations. So we don't be, so we're not mm -hmm. caught off guard uh, so that we can be at our best. I mean, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but is that what I'm hearing you say? I think it's all very helpful. I mean, so think about when you were uh, off of break in, you know, off of without your field training officer, and you're riding with your beat partner and maybe you're on graveyards. We're running scenarios through our head all the time, right? What if we stop this person? What if this happens? What are we gonna do? Those are the things we're told to do. So we, we practice that so we can be prepared in the case of something like that happening. So this is the same situation that we should allow ourselves to go into uncomfortable spaces and uncomfortable conversations so that it does armor us for those conversations that we are going to have at some point. We're going to have them with peers that are going to be difficult to have. We're going to have those with supervisor managers that are going to be difficult to have, but we also get to have a voice there. And I want to remind anybody who's listening that even though you have a supervisor and a manager, don't ever feel like you cannot have a voice back. It, we do have to be respectful in that. And if we're having an emotional moment, maybe we need to have a pause. Maybe we need to take a second but we want to be heard. So when we're talking with that passion versus emotion, it changes how the message is received. But we do need to practice. We need to practice that too. Like anything else we prepare for or train for, difficult conversations are called difficult for a reason. You know what, Chief, I'll, I'll tell you, we, we do have a, we have a pretty significant uh, female um, audience. Audience, yeah. And, 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 
I'm telling you right now, uh, I am so proud of you because uh, you do not see, and correct me if I'm wrong, and I've only, I only, I've only known a few um, black females who have um, risen to the level of assistant chief, especially in the highway patrol. So can you tell us and to our, our all of our listeners, but especially to our, our female listeners, you know, how, why the why the California Highway Patrol? Why why uh, when did you decide to promote? And um, you know, what what are you most proud? What's your proudest moment? So why the Highway Patrol? Okay, so um, my whole backstory growing up is just broken, shattered, and a hot mess, right? So. When I graduated high school, which was luckily I graduated from high school, um, I got a job. You know, so going to college wasn't my trajectory. So I got a job as a typist clerk um, for our county human resources. And I was 18 years old. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. Um, we had lived in so many different cities and towns and lived with families, no families, we were homeless. I mean, we had so many things that I was just like I said, lucky to graduate high school. And um, I can remember like probably right around, I was 20, cause I went into, I, I started the process when I was 20 and a half with CHP, but there was a huge ad in the newspaper. And those were the physical newspapers that you read and you touch and you look at. And it had a huge advertisement for the California Heart Patrol. And it said what it was gonna pay me for a salary it talked about what my benefits were going to be. And it talked about a thing called retirement. And it had this criteria that I had to meet, which I easily met because it was very minimal and it didn't have a requirement for college degree. It was just high school diploma. And I was like, well, why not? Because I grew up watching chips. Um, yep. I As basketball. we all did. <laughs> yeah, I played basketball in high school. So I felt that was pretty athletic. And, you know, I did had nobody in law enforcement. Uh, in fact, I was raised by a single mother. Um, she had been a nurse when she was um, working. And so she was in a service career, you know, and I said, why not? So I chose the Highway Patrol just because I saw the ad in the paper and it, it seemed to make sense. And I was really bored being the type as clerk. And uh, so I, my background process was pretty quick because I was 20 and a half. I didn't have a, a lot of crazy stuff in my background. And I think I was in the academy within like six months and it was in Sacramento. So I, my tail end of my childhood, I grew up in Bakersfield. And um, so went up to the academy, um, had no idea what to expect because it was paramilitary. You, you live away from home. It's six months long, roughly. And every day I wanted to quit. Every single day I wanted to quit. I didn't know why I was there. I didn't understand why people were screaming at me all the time. And there weren't very many women and there definitely weren't very many women of color. And even back then, I feel like people didn't know what I was unless I had to tell you what I was. So I wasn't in a space to be telling everybody who I was all the time. I was trying to survive getting through this academy experience. And I will tell you, um, by the grace of God, yes, I will say it on your podcast. Oh, that's fine. God, I want you to. I was able to manage my way through there with the help of many. 
um, and the fact that my mother just would not let me quit either. And, you know, when I fast forward and I look back, all of that really, to me, becomes who you are when you start to see your leadership in yourself, because it really helps you to create the foundation you need, because you're going to come across other individuals who are going to have backgrounds that are broken, backgrounds that are confusing. They don't know where they fit in, if they are worthy or deserving. or, And I know what that feels like. So I'm able to lean in differently in my leadership because I've experienced um, some of that path with them. So that's kind of how I, I, I got to the Highway Patrol. My ascension to leadership, uh, I think, is like many women. Uh, we get in, we're not necessarily focused on promoting. Um, we're having fun, uh, working the road. Um, we start to think about having a family, um, getting married. And I did. I, I got married, had my uh, first son very young. And so you think about how that's going to impact what you're doing just to do the just to show up and go to work every day, not let's think about promoting. And then probably about my seventh year, I started seeing who was promoting. <laughs> <laughs> and they like, don't look like you? Yeah. <laughs> well, the fact that it wasn't even how they didn't look like me, it was like they weren't even qualified to lead mm -hmm. other people. I was just like, if they're going to promote, then why can't I promote? Right. Yeah. So, I embarked on this journey of thinking, well, why not me, right? And mm -hmm. unbeknownst to me, I didn't realize the very value and importance of a network that was supportive, but a network that would help leverage you in your promotional aspirations. Um, also having somebody that would help you to prepare for promotion. What does that look, look like? It's not just preparing for the exam, but it's preparing your leadership all that inventory and body of work that I should have been doing for seven years that now would qualify me as well as help me to understand how to take the promotional examination process. So it took me uh, three times before I passed the sergeant's test. And after that, it was not a thing. That's all I got to say. It was not a thing because I learned to understand the importance of not looking outwardly at what other people have and what they were doing and like waiting for people to see me and tap me on the shoulder and want to mentor me and help me. But I also started to see what I needed to be doing. And what I needed to be doing was building my skills, getting experience and exposure in the right way, understanding how to leverage those professional networks, and then also seeking opportunities that really put me out there so other people could see who I was and see that um, you know it's based on my merit, not because I know anybody or somebody did me a favor. And I felt like once I promoted, I felt um, that my calling was to give back. And so I conducted study groups for the rest of my career and had my staff conduct study groups and helped others promote. And we did it in a way where it wasn't gaming the promotional system so you could get on a list. It was understanding that you needed to grow your knowledge and policy and how to apply policy, you know, how to develop your skills, how to develop leadership, how to understand your potential and your ability and the expectations that came with it. And you said, what was my proudest moment? That is my proudest moment is living out this journey that that looks to the outside of people that it was all for me. 
but it wasn't because it changed the quality of life for me and my family. So my family legacy looks very different than the legacy that I was living through my mother and my father, who I didn't know very well. And it changed that quality for them. But it also changed to me, I believe, everybody that I've been able to impact or influence um, by just being somebody that was there for them, somebody that helped them along the way, somebody that gave them guidance, um, somebody that gave them direction or discipline. Um, and so I, I'm very proud of those moments of my career. Chief, okay. I, I just have one other question. Um, when when did you, can, do you recall the, inc the incident or the, the particular time that you found your voice uh, in a male predominant, in a male dominated profession um, that do you recall that aha moment that it, that it happened? Yeah, but it's not positive. Okay. So that first time that I felt like I could rise up and say something, um, it was, it was two very specific moments. Cause I think if you guys can recall your training experience, not that newness, that you just don't have the confidence to really speak about a whole lot of things, not even to your FTOs or to supervisors. But on my um, break-in period, I had a field training officer that was, again, I was 21 years old, and I think they might have been 10 or 12 years older than me. I can't remember, maybe 16 years older than me. And it was very <clears throat> difficult. I went to a, so California, the state of California is huge. I'm in Sacramento, which is the northern part of California, but I'm sent down to the southern part of California. And in that particular command, they hadn't had women, um, not very many women. And so here we are, brand new recruits. And so they just really, there was a hazing and a treatment of women that was just, you know, um, unnecessary. And I think probably about my... I don't know, sixth day of my 10 or 12, 15 day period with them. I can't remember the duration. I just really had had enough. And, I, and, I, and I'm saying this in transparency that I wanted to quit. I wanted to quit. I had had enough. I was like, I just can't do it. I want to quit. This person is cussing at me all the time, yelling at me, saying I, I'm, I'm, I can't do my job. What are you doing? Uh, get over here. Just like very controlling, very nerve wracking. Mm -hmm. And that evening, um, I was going to go home, but before I went home, I said, I can't remember the gentleman's name, um, and probably that's probably healthy. Um, and I just told him, you know what, I would appreciate in a very slow way that you never, ever, ever speak to me like that again. And I said, I'm going to go home. I'm tired. And I'm going to get some sleep because it was graveyard. And I didn't want to say anything else because I was like, oh, my God, I'm on break in if I say anything else. And he was like, if you leave this office, you better never come back here again. And I turned very quickly. And because it was a new area in command, I lived literally across the street. So I would never be late for work. So I lived in an apartment across the street. And I cried all the way across the street and went home. And I called my mother, my mother, and she came over. And or she might have been staying with me at the time because I was new. And I'm 21. And she was like, just go to sleep. And so she would tell me to go to sleep and she goes, you're gonna go to work. You're gonna go into work tomorrow morning and you're gonna talk to your captain and you're gonna work through this. And I was like, no, I'm not, I'm never going back. I hate this place, I hate that person. And she's like, okay, just go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and I went to sleep. Yeah. So that was my first moment of just speaking. It wasn't great, it wasn't wonderful, 
but it, I had the courage to say something to him because I had been riding with him day after day, just having this barrage and this feeling of like, I'm incompetent. And I'm like, I know I'm not incompetent, but this is how the person made me feel. And the whole conversation with the captain the next day was really interesting because he brought us both in. I thought I was going to be the only one that was going to get like, you know, he brought us both in and told us what the expectations were for my FTO and expectations for me on how if I do have an issue, how I should be conducting myself and how I can come to him and that, you know, how we should have our relationship the rest of the time. And it was great because it completely changed. It completely changed everything. And then my next moment of having my voice where it was working to be more positive was speaking up on things that I felt like weren't right or, or didn't feel fair, fair or equitable when I was an officer, but they weren't always received that way by my male peers because women were supposed to really be seen, well, not even policing, we weren't supposed to be seen or heard. So if you mm -hmm. were seen and heard, then you were, you were like, um, you were a problem, right? And so that was probably like the first times. And then in leadership, I just felt like if I was, um, I knew my stuff and I was prepared for things, then why shouldn't I be speaking? Mm -hmm. Okay. Absolutely. Hey, I want to remind everybody who's just now tuning into the podcast show that uh, tonight's topic is finding your voice in law enforcement. And uh, for those who are tuning in on LinkedIn, we want to thank you for tuning in live on LinkedIn Live and Facebook Live and our YouTube channel. And uh, we've got on a very special guest, uh, retired assistant chief Reddick with the uh, California Highway Patrol, CHP. And, and we, as you mentioned earlier, we grew up watching Chips. And so that was one of those shows. I don't if it came on Thursday, you were right there in front of the TV watching watching it. And, um, but I want to ask you a question about, uh, another black female who rose through the ranks, who became the first, uh, commissioner with the highway patrol commissioner, uh, Ray. And I'm pretty sure you guys, you, you ladies are very good friends. Uh, about when she came in and you came in, what kind of time frame was that? And was that somebody at what point in your career did you all cross paths? Uh, to meet each other? Um, so I was senior to her. And okay. it, so this is so, it, you really got to put this in context. The California Heart Patrol, the state of California has just shy of 40 million people. And we are stretched across the entire West Coast. Mm -hmm. We have um, nine field divisions. Um, we have a headquarters. And we probably have 120 commands throughout the state of California. So uh, for Amanda or uh, Commissioner Ray, she came on and she was in the southern, southern part, like our border division area, Riverside area. And for me, when I came on, I, I went into more of um, south and east part of L.A., but I didn't stay there. I didn't stay there my whole career. I moved up the coastline because chips. I wanted to be near the coast. I thought maybe I could be hang gliding <laughs> or riding. Doesn't happen. Um and then I so moved you, up. And, did did I you ever think up. about getting on a motorcycle, becoming a chip? There's no air conditioning <laughs> on a motorcycle. There's no on a motorcycle. No. Um, and then I moved up towards the Bay Area and then inland uh, to what we call our Valley Division area. And so 
she and I never crossed paths till much later on in our career. And I want to think it was more like when we were probably getting to be about late lieutenants or captains um, coming across each other's path in that way, because uh, there would be things in headquarters that would bring us together. Mm -hmm. um, you get on special assignments and, you know, you get selected because there's not very many of you. So you come together on those particular projects. Um, but the latter part of our career, we were very uh, good friends and very close. I'm very inspired by her. Um, it takes a lot to be able to endure um, and endure well to be the first black female of a predominantly white male uh, state law enforcement agency, one of the largest in the country. And so, um, you know, there's a lot that comes with that and that's not my story to tell, but I'm just very proud of her. I'm always inspired by her. I'm grateful that we had the relationship we had and we have the one that we currently have today because it's, it's difficult for you to manage that and have people that you can um, still confide in and speak to because when you're it, there's really not many other people that you can really be you with. And so I just mm -hmm. appreciate that we were just able to be really good friends um, and that she survived it and retired. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So when you came on in, in the academy, how many women were in your academy class? Um, so in my academy class, I want to say we had maybe 150 or shy of 150 people. So we had 23, 24, 25, not all graduated. So when I came through the academy, they brought women up a week early so we could learn how to shoot a gun, change a tire, um, and be yelled at by the PT staff for the first five, six, seven days to see if we crack, break, or leave before the men came, and several did. Um, and yeah, so I, when I look at it though, I don't know that I really looked at it while I was in it as just being a woman or being a woman of color. I just felt like I was trying to survive this thing that I was so unfamiliar with because I, mm -hmm. again, I had no prior military <laughs> I really I worked an office job. I was a secretary. And now I'm out here, you know, yelling at people. I'm doing physical methods of arrest, um, you know, and they're just so aggressive. You know, all the PT and folks at the academy, they're just so aggressive. Nobody ever smiles. Nobody's really happy. <laughs> it's like, they're just in yeah. this like pressure cooker to just become these like militaristic all, people. Yeah. Kind of like a robot. Kind of, yeah. You're so kind of like a robot. And, and I understand the importance of all of that, of course, now, right? I mean, I, you know, moving into being a chief and all that. I under, absolutely understand that. It just was, we don't have what we have now. Like we have different um, onboarding for people who are coming into the career. So before you go into the academy, you and your spouse or your family get to have an orientation, understand those expectations what it's going to be like in the academy for you. There's different curriculum that's been built in to help support cadets um, through the whole process of an academy environment. And, mm -hmm. and I think they're doing a very good job of being able to help um, to understand how you take what you learn in the academy, but that you have to, um, it has to transform when you go into the real world because mm -hmm. all of that is not going to apply every single stop or every single interaction. Those are, that's a, you know, sped up process to give you everything you need for your career, right? 
outside of that yeah. refresher training that you get. So you don't go apply all of that to every moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so going through the academy, get out of the academy. Now they're saying, hey, you're going to be assigned. Well, I want to go back because you mentioned something about coming to uh, you. You all showed up a week before the men showed up. And we've kind of heard that from other uh, uh, female officers that we've had on the on the podcast show when they went through the academy, whether it's in the municipal police department or with the highway patrol, that for some reason, it seems like that was has been the culture that women come in before the men do. And it's and then we've heard where it's almost kind of like the women are on some kind of display for men. And I don't know if you experienced any of that, but uh, we had on a, we talked on a previous podcast about a group of uh, women. I want to say, believe, keep putting up in Baltimore, somewhere up on the uh, East coast where they, yeah, some of them got pregnant. Some of them were having family issues and just the way that, that the men were treating them, was was unbelievable and so uh but they had some voices they used their voices to raise those issues so i don't know if that's something that you can speak on as being a woman you came into this profession at a very uh, young age and then you start having a family and how did your family you know say hey listen i know this is a path you want to go but it sounds like you had a lot of support from your mother when you became a mom. Uh, how did your family uh, cope with that? Or, or, or how did they treat you when you uh, were expecting, when you advised them that you were expecting? Was there any yeah, different treatment or anything like that? Yeah. And we've heard a lot of women who have a lot of challenges because, hey, listen, I'm, I'm expecting a child and now you go from being looked at one way to, you know, looked at totally different. And those are very real issues. Those, whether they were 30 years ago or today, those are still very real issues. Um, but I want to just kind of go back to the, uh, I felt I had a lot of good male allies in the academy. I had some good yep. male peers. They weren't trying to sleep with me. They weren't trying to date me. I had one. Mm -hmm. I don't know what he was thinking, but yeah. But the, <laughs> one, but the other ones that I leaned into, they were uh -huh. really to help me to understand those small little things that you need to do daily to get through that academy, like how to make your bed, you know, how to pick up your physical, you know, activity on your run so that you can just every day be a little bit earlier to something so you could eat, so you could sustain yourself for class, so you can sustain yourself for marching, so you could sustain yourself for the evening. Uh, polishing of brass that you would have to do or early morning PT. So I just want to I, I say a big thank you to a lot of my male allies that were there that helped me be able to do that. And I've had many throughout my career. And so when I got pregnant, um, I happened to be in the Bay Area and the Bay Area is a little more um, diverse than, say, if I would have been in, say, my later office that I was in Stockton or an office further north, maybe. Um, but those metropolitan uh, turnover offices where we get new um, young officers all the time, we treat each other a little bit differently. Um, even back then, we still had some old timers that were there and they wouldn't talk to women. They definitely wouldn't ride with you. 
And if they had to ride with you, they'd go home sick and a supervisor just wouldn't skip a beat. It would be like, that was just the thing that you do. They could call your name and nobody would ever really say anything. And so when I got pregnant, we had a couple, again, I want to say really cool men that supported us, which I think bridges that level of how they treat you when a senior officer treats you like kindly, then he also protects some of that silliness from his mm -hmm. own peers. And so I felt like um, me and my girlfriend who are graveyard partners, we really had that kind of experience because unbeknownst to us, we were, you know, new officers with probably three or four years on um, recently married and we got kind of pregnant back to back a little bit. Um, but I was supported and I didn't live close to the office. And so again, we're very spread out. And um, when you find out you're pregnant, you up to a certain point back then, um, you got to go on light duty. And when I had to go on light duty, I was like, I'm still really far away from the office. And so we had a dispatch center that was closer to where I was living. And I want to say it was like, you know, 25 or 30 miles closer. And they allowed me to work in the wow. dispatch center um, until I was able to give birth to my son, which I had a complicated pregnancy. So it was a whole whole thing that went on with that. But mm -hmm. I never, never, me personally, experienced anybody um, treating me less than or talking about me. But I'm a different kind of personality. So back when I was an officer, I knew God, but I didn't have a relationship with him very well yet in those moments. Uh -huh. So my, my, my mouth sounded like their mouth a lot of time when they got crazy with me. And so... Mm -hmm. You, you kind of develop a rapport in that way, in some way. And, um, but it's very real for what women experience when they think about their careers in policing, when they think about how they want to sequence their promotions and how they can feel supported. And so, you know, I would just encourage them to have those conversations with like supervisors. There should be a, a human resource element that supports them to know what their family friendly policies are to know how much time you can have with FMLA. Are there specialty assignments that maybe you can do versus sit at a desk and file paper, do admin work versus can you sit in um, muster briefings and hear what's going on in the organization about you know, reducing crime or impacting whatever else. So you're gaining knowledge and experience in a different way versus we think sometimes that it has to all be this physical um, road patrol experience, right? There's, yes, mm -hmm. there's great, utility in that we all need to have the basics down, but we don't need to sit idle um, and not gain anything. There's a lot of opportunities that you can kind of, you know, repurpose people in assignments and positions where they can still feel valued um, and you can still value them while they're going through this experience that's very different based on gender. Yeah. Hey, I uh, want to remind everybody who's just now tuning into the podcast show who is tuning in on LinkedIn Live and uh, our Facebook page as well as our YouTube channel that uh, tonight's topic is finding your voice in law enforcement. And this is part of our uh, Black History Month uh, podcast series. And we've got on a very special guest, uh, retired assistant chief Reddick with the uh, California Highway Patrol, CHP. So uh, if you got questions or comments, uh, put those in the chat and we'll get those up. We had one uh, previously who came in on LinkedIn. Uh, Amy Perez said, uh, you give you give great guidance. Uh, I know she wasn't talking about 
me and my co-host. I'm pretty sure she was talking about about you. So uh, we want to definitely thank those who are listening on on LinkedIn Live for for joining us again. If you have any questions or comments, put those in the chat, and we'll get to those throughout the podcast. You know, it's a uh, it's a uh, like I told you earlier, Chief. It's it is a honor and. Anytime I see uh, females in law enforcement and those who have worked their way up. So anytime I see a female in law enforcement, I I can only imagine because when I first got into law enforcement, uh, when I first day of the academy, uh, the female officers were warned about uh, they would their tenure would be short in the department if they became pregnant. Uh, basically, they were told uh, not to even think about getting pregnant until after their uh, probationary period. And I just think about that, you know, where, uh, you know, that's just that's 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 wrong. Uh, I even thought so then, you know, they thought that that was fine as, as you know, departments based on you had more men in supervisory positions. That was just a, a thing to say. It wasn't it didn't no one thought about. But I do recall that someone, you know, I, I believe that someone had to find their voice uh, in order for federal laws to change and the law is for uh, state laws to change and po- department policy change, where as a, as a female, you have a right to make that decision when you're ready to go on light duty. Uh, I feel that, that are, those are things that there had to be someone, we're talking about finding your voice, there had to be someone whose voice, who, who wasn't afraid to stand up for what was right uh, and, and to ensure that female law enforcement officers were respected and were, and were given the same amount of respect, uh, no less, uh, you know, no special treatment, but they were given uh, the same amount of respect as counterparts. And so, you know, we talk about the voice and that's someone's voice had to be, had to be heard. And I was going to say something a few minutes ago, you don't appear to me as a, as a shrinking violet. So I think that um, you put people in, in their places. I, I, you know, you said something about <laughs> you didn't know what that guy was thinking about uh, in your class. I'm pretty sure. Uh, I, I don't know you well, but I'm pretty sure I can just only imagine that conversation. And that conversation yeah. probably was very quick and very uh, direct. And you didn't have any more problems after that conversation. And it's um, and that's kind of been my personality. Like I'm a kind person. I'm thoughtful. I, I I take care of my people, but I don't like silliness. I don't deal with nonsense. And as I kind of had a maturation process through my life and my career, I no longer was that young officer, uh, feeling very um, insecure. And to me, the insecurity was um, I manifest that in trying to be like everybody else. I assimilated with the language. I assimilated with the attitude, all of that, because I felt like that's how I was going to be able to, you know, be able to band together or, you know, what, right. But as I matured, um, I I didn't have to do that anymore. And I appreciate that I had the opportunity when I did lead in small commands to midsize large commands and then overseeing many, many, many commands that people respected what my reputation had become and who I was. So they knew um, at the time my last name was Fenner. So they knew that Chief Fenner was um, definitely not going to tolerate any type of language um, or disrespect um, to other people um, in the environment in which we're in. 
because that's not professional. You know, we forget when we're walking through the hallways and we're walking around in our offices that we just can't talk any kind of way. We have clerical workers, we have auto techs, we have dispatchers, we have all kinds of people that aren't the public, because I hope you're not talking to the public like that, but we also can't tolerate that in the office. And for a while, um, they were a little standoff-ish to me until they got to see the heart of me. And I encourage like uh, women who are in their first year of leadership to their later years of leadership. It's okay to be authentically you. It's okay for you to create the boundaries that work for you. What are your values? If they align with the organization then stand for them, don't bend, don't bend because we start to feel insecure and we want to be liked and we want to fit in. I liked being liked, but I appreciated being respected and liked. And so when you talk about this space of having the voice, it's how we're having it, whether it's in a big way to create big change, or we're having it in a way that influences small changes within our span of control. And that's daily on how we're having those. And we can, like I said, we can stand against something, but we can do it respectfully, but we don't always have to bend to, to like fit in or to, to be liked just because we feel like, well, we're women. So, you know, we've got to have either, or we should, we should be able to have what we need to have um, to be confident. Chief, yeah. did you, uh, did you ever have any of your female peers tell you or ask you to knock it off? You're going to make it hard for us. Um, you know, coming up through your career, hey, would you just knock that off? It's not that big a deal. You better go along to get along. Did you did you experience quite a bit of that? No, I, I can honestly say I don't feel like I had um, any of that from any of my female peers. In fact, they were tougher than me. Okay, I was like, <laughs> okay, I was being I was being trained up by the best. Okay, I, mean, mm-hmm. I had a, a female captain. Um, you know, I won't mention her name, but she was one tough sister that's all i got to say and she tolerated no nonsense but she would come in on our casual days and she would wear her heeled boots now this sounds may sound kind of interesting to men like what does that what does that matter women constantly are thinking about what they're wearing how it will appear to other people does it make me less qualified less leadery less police officery um, especially when you want to wear your like casual business attire, your casual attire, because you don't have to be in uniform for that training or this thing or that thing. But she mm-hmm. showed me that you can wear your pumps and you can wear your combat boots and be just as tough. Mm-hmm. And so those are things that women have to balance too. Like not everybody's going to wear pumps. I'm just using that as kind of an analogy, but sure. you can be who you want to be. Yeah. But you want to let people know who you are. So if you're hiding yourself for a very long time and you're slowly becoming this butterfly, know that people are working that process with you. So we also have to give a little grace if we don't let people know um, who we are, what we stand for, and they start to say things. And then we're like, you know, confused on why that's happening. Maybe we didn't make it clear and maybe I didn't make it plain. No, I do not want to go on a date and have pizza with you. So I just want to make that clear and plain. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that was my academy thing. But um, so we, <laughs> we, have this, we have this space where, yes, there are structural barriers and organizations 
that limit us from being able to have that voice like we need to or promote to higher ranks. Um, there's also barriers, um, self-limiting behavioral barriers that we have that we create for ourselves sometimes as well, because we can minimize ourselves in conversations and rooms um, and not even feel like we're present by our body language, by the language we use, by the language we don't use at all, from where we sit in a room, um, how engaged or not engaged we are. And so I think as women, if we can be more self-aware and we can get into communities with other women to support and help encourage us, whether that's mentorship or you know, coaching or just being around other women who are in you know, other positions than yourself. And it doesn't just have to be law enforcement women. It can be women in any industry. I mean, we are all dealing with this universally on how to really find who we are and help <clears throat> our, our male allies be able to support us. I mean, I just feel like, I feel like men just want to support us. I feel like the, the few that want to suppress and oppress and hold people back, that's really not anymore. I just feel like organizations are overly <clears throat> on it. And so the two of you, if you're hanging out somewhere, you're not thinking about me, you're just hanging out. So yeah. if there's not more of us, then you can't really think about how to help us. Um, yeah. yeah, Chief Reddick. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I could Chief talk Reddick. all day, I don't know all the time. time. Oh, oh no, 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 no you're, you're good. good. I'm enjoying this, I'm enjoying yeah. this. You're good. Uh, Chief Humphrey and I know uh, a good friend of ours who is the first black female. Uh, first and only. The, first and only black female with the Oklahoma Highway Patrol. Um, she re recently retired. Uh, so she went 20 something years. That, that agency went 20 something years without recruiting mm -hmm. another black female. And uh, so and, and she's a member of the um, which I was a, a part of the. the Oklahoma Highway Troopers Coalition. Um, as you rose through the ranks uh, and got out and traveled around the United States, did you run across other women who were with a highway patrol? Um, and what was their experience of what they went through? Because obviously what you went through in California sound, has sounded totally different than what I have heard other women talk about who went through a, uh, a state agency, uh, such as a highway patrol. Um, it, did you hear, you know, kind of experience what they went through compared to what you went through? Well, I want to first address the experience. I think it's not dissimilar. I think it's very similar. I think it's just the way in which I have filtered it through my life to be more, not positive, but less negative. Um, because the experiences, if you look at them from anybody's lens, could be negative. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to work through the more positive approach and, and perspective of that because that's what didn't keep me stuck. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like if I would have been too bitter or too angry or too upset or just frustrated or just felt like it, the whole system was against me, I wouldn't have had this ability to be self-motivated to move forward and to reach out to people that I could have stayed frustrated with, but I needed them. I needed them to leverage the network, to know the information that I needed to, to, to help guide me in some assignments so that I could get the exposure. So it's really about how we, we wanna hold on to that. 
And for me, I, I just purposely don't want to hold on to any of those things that could have felt like that. Um, and so everybody's story is their own. And so, you know, um, after I retired, I, I'm a professor for the University of San Diego and I teach graduate program for law enforcement and public safety leaders um, in their master's degree. So it's, uh, you know, law enforcement leaders nationwide across the country who come through the classes that I'm one of the instructors for. And yes, um, you know, law enforcement is predominantly white male, but what I find mm -hmm. is these leaders are just looking for strategies and ways to be able to be more effective in their organizations to do the very things that we're talking about, to recruit mm -hmm. more people of color, recruit more women, um, just be able to recruit good people, right? And yeah. so I think if we look at the lens of leadership without always placing this kind of um, lens of uh, not inclusion versus inclusion, because we know that racism, discrimination, all of those things exist. Um, but that's why I found that it was really important that I wanted to keep contributing and I wanted to contribute um, through this particular way. Uh, so I adjunct there, I adjunct at a junior college on the other end for uh, cadets who want to come into law enforcement. So it's a post-certified academy and you have half, you know, 75% are sponsored, 25% are hoping to be sponsored by an agency by the mm -hmm. time they end. And I teach a cultural immersion um, class. And it's very specific why I chose that because I want them to understand that, you know, we have more in common than we have that are different, but we have to be intentional about how we see the people we engage with, not only in the community, but how we engage together when we're in law enforcement agencies so people can feel seen. They don't feel like they're all alone because that's how people can feel if they don't see someone that looks like themselves or we just feel like, you know, people just don't see us, period. And so yeah. Those are the kind of things when I'm I'm moving across the country, working with Noble, uh, the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives, um, working in different capacities for them at the national level and research work that I do um, when I'm consulting is really looking at organizational change and how leaders can make those impactful um, decisions, but also execute them. Because we can sit here all day on a podcast and think about all these things but if we don't go back and actually execute, um, then we're not actually delivering anything. So, yeah. yes, yeah. I come across women all the time that they're <laughs> first. I went to a conference. Uh, it was a NOLI conference, uh, the National Association of Women Law Enforcement Executives Conference, mm -hmm. probably two years ago. I was like their closing speaker, which I was extremely humbled at. You know, some of those things I can't believe people asked me to do, but I was really humbled. But I'm sitting at a table of eight and they're acknowledging uh, women who are the first in different organizations at the podium. And at the table, I can hear some women go, wow, that's so cool. You know, I, I just, wow, that's really neat. And I said, well, well, what are you? I mean, well, I'm the sixth. I'm like, well, we need to be celebrating the sixth <laughs> and the seventh yeah. and the eighth because we can't just focus on the ones what about all those others that are coming behind them? Because those are still extraordinary numbers. Right. Oh, so yeah, definitely. I'm meeting those people all the time, all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, Chief, yeah. I, I wish there's one word I wish we could totally extract out of the out of vocabulary. And that's just because that's one thing that I, I hear 
on a constant basis. Well, I'm just an officer. Oh, I'm just a sergeant. I'm just, and I think we have to ensure and, and listening to you, there's no doubt that you have uh, assured or you have basically, you know, informed or helped people understand you, you're valuable no matter what level uh, in the organization. But I just, I hate to see, I think you and I are on the same page. I hate to see people stop at, well, I was number five, like you said, because there's a sixth, there's a seventh, there's a 20th. Uh, what we want to do is keep it going. Uh, we don't want to. We don't want to just celebrate just. And I, I, I just. I wish we could get more people, men and women. But I hear that more in a lot of female from a lot of female um, law enforcement professionals. And I just wish it was more of, you know, the fact that man, I'm I'm reaching back, pulling somebody. And yeah, I was number five, but I want to see number six. Uh, I don't have to be the highlighted person. And that's just, that's just amazing. Um, do you, do you happen to know Rhonda Lawson? I do not. Okay. Rhonda was the uh, first African-American female to reach. I, I know she made major and I think she made a sit in, in Texas in the Texas highway patrol. And uh, I was just, I was just wondering if you knew, if you knew her, but yeah, it's interesting about Latika uh, Alexander, who was, how, you know, how do you in, 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 Oklahoma. in Oklahoma, you know, how do you, how, how do you justify uh, hiring only one? Well, you know, uh, you, you're recruiting white females, but you have in the history of that organization, you've had one African-American female. Mm-hmm. And since she retired three to four years ago, you haven't hired another. And the reason that she was interested is because she was, recruited from an HBCU. So this is not a surprise. So no. if you even look at the California Highway Patrol, if you look at the California Highway Patrol, we are like a very diverse state. There are no black women in the pipeline past lieutenant currently, wow. as far as I know. Wow. And this is a 7,500 plus uniformed positions. Um, it- and, you know, so it, it, these, these state agencies um, are very challenged with, uh, okay, so I, I just want people who are listening, I am not saying that discrimination and bias does not happen. But what I am saying also is the systems and processes that are in place in state agencies make it very difficult because if I am a municipality, say in the city of Bakersfield, and I'm looking to recruit black women, they know they're gonna work in the city of Bakersfield. So they're mm-hmm. probably more apt to say, yes, I want to apply because I know I'm not going to have to go anywhere but live in Bakersfield. Right. Yeah. When you apply for a large state agency, you're not guaranteed you, where you're going to be working, period. Exactly. Yeah. And right. That's tough. That's right. tough. Yeah. yeah. Chief, and correct me but, if I'm wrong, and it's, <clears throat> and it's even more so when you start promoting because you could be moved. I mean, it's a choice. Yeah. Definitely yeah, yeah, is yeah. all a choice. Right. right. I get to choose if I want to join the higher patrol, knowing that I may, you know, be in Southern California or the desert or the hills mm-hmm. or the, the snow. And same thing when you decide to promote. It is a choice that you will end up making and you'll have to consider, you know, all those factors, family and all of that. Yes. Yeah. Well, Chief, I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier about, you know, you looked at the newspaper. There was this ad for, you know, CHP out uh, 
officers. Uh, fast forward to the times that we're in now where there's a lot more recruiting uh, efforts out there. From the, looking back when you came in and looking back uh, where the agency is at now, uh, I know a lot has changed, a lot more emphasis is, is done on recruiting, but were there some things that once you became up in the command staff level as an assistant chief that you looked at and said, you know, we did this back when, when I came through, uh, but let's do something different. And I know things are pretty structured, but did you have the opportunity to make some of the, to bring about some of those changes or even to have those conversations about how this may influence more women of color to get into this profession? So, um, well, we know economically things are very different um, contemporarily today, and people have a lot of different opportunities for uh, career choices, and especially women can pick different careers that are hybrid um, mm -hmm. and provide just as much money as you know certain law enforcement agencies, depending on where you work, gives them a lot more flexibility. So we have that to compete with when you look at law enforcement across the country, along with many other factors. But um, when I was over statewide recruitment for the CHP, you know, we had a decentralized uh, effort of recruiters that work particularly in their communities. They work with community advisory boards to help them to develop strategies that work well for particular communities. They help to bridge those relationships um, at a larger scale. It's about how you market and how you advertise. You can't generalize um, is what I say. Um, you need to personalize. And we collaborated with um, other partners and institutions. So one that I was really excited that we partnered with was um, our state university of Sacramento. Um, and it's called the Law Enforcement Candidate Scholars Program. It's the kind of the first and I think maybe one of its kind. Um, and it's starting to grow, I think, and where they um, you know, get federal funds now to be able to help them. And what it is is students get some credit um, different partnering agencies in the local area partner with the university. And um, students go through a program where they learn about law enforcement, where they get to actually go on ride-alongs. They get to go and see the jail facility at the sheriff department. They can go visit the California Highway Patrol. They have instructors that come over that are active law enforcement to talk about um, law enforcement. They help them understand what's needed in their backgrounds um, because these are places where people get screened out. And so um, all those things are processes in a system when you talk about recruiting, but it's not just recruiting, it's also um, your backgrounds in hiring. You know, how, who are your background investigators and how long have they been in there? Um, there's certain legal criteria that we have to screen people out for, but there's a lot of gray area where you can have background yeah. investigators who are kind of gatekeeping. And so mm -hmm. what are your auditing processes to know you know, what are your background investigators disqualifying that is a gray space? And are you having roundtables for them to come in like I did and share with me why you have disqualified them when it's not an automatic uh, DQ? And mm -hmm. we have those conversations because certain people who have challenges with change of employment, credit status, living status, there's, there's a good reason sometimes. So why don't we explore what it is versus we automatically say they're not ready for candidacy for uh, being a cadet because it shows lack of immaturity or this or that or the other. We are trying to establish that they're ready to be a cadet. 
not the officer yet, because when you go to the academy, we are training you to become the officer. So, but we get people in those positions and they've held them for years, sometimes longer than that. So there's just so much to that whole thing that um, when I think about Oklahoma Highway Patrol or CHP, that you can do to encourage and increase your numbers, but it has to be very intentional. It can't be the flavor of the month or the day or the year. It has to be yeah. consistent. Yeah. And you have to personalize it. Can't be generalized. Right. Yeah. You know, I know we're I know we're coming up on the last part of the show, but I, I wanted to say something really quick. You said something really interesting. It is it is amazing how we determine a person's success in an organization that they've never worked, that they never had experience, based on the initial interview. Oh yeah, this person's gonna be, oh, this is gonna be a good one. Oh, this is gonna be a bad one. It, it's just amazing how we're we, we, we're not getting them through the basics yet before we're already saying, this person's gonna be a failure, this person's gonna be a success. So I, I understand exactly what you're saying. We have to teach, uh, we have to focus on how do we teach them to be uh, to learn about themselves, mature, uh, be made, you know, to to become a better person than a better and a better law enforcement person. Then before they can start talking about promoting. Oh, absolutely! One of the, the biggest gaps, the biggest gaps in law enforcement agencies across this country is they do not have leadership development training for line frontline officers. Absolutely. It generally, it generally starts once you promote to sergeant and anything else is an offer to officers mm -hmm. if you want to attend it outside of the agency versus developing a program that develops leadership in your frontline officers. So not only are they going to be just better officers, they're going to be better to each other, better to the community. You are creating that, um, you know, upward mobility in their leadership progression. Yeah. It's a miss, One of the it's things just don't do it. You just don't do it. Yeah. I don't hear of it very often. If so, it's always outsourced and only so many people can attend it. And maybe oh, yeah, you're, really, you're spot on. You're absolutely right. You're spot on. Yeah. Yeah. Chief Reddick, one of the uh, things that I did at the new agency that I'm uh, with now in, in uh, Minnesota uh, came in uh, first African-American uh, police chief at the city's history. Um, but I challenged the, um, the sergeants and uh, to give me a professional development plan. What is your, what is your plan? What, where are you trying to go? Are you just trying to be a sergeant on night shift for 20 years or what are you trying to do? And they looked at me as if like, <laughs> where are you from? I mean, you know. So and I, I challenge you, I challenge you to take it a step further and offer it to your frontline officers, not a requirement. It, but it's an option that they can do with their supervisor annually. It will change the game. It will yeah. change the game. And 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 I did that. And and everybody looked, this was like, it was almost like I had, you know, I was giving them some kind of assignment. Like, you know, I'm thinking, you guys got to think about your career. You may not want to be in this career for the next 20 years. But if you come up with some kind of career plan, this helps me help you help you to get to where you're, you're trying to go. And it was the first time that they'd had a police chief who sat down with them uh, to encourage them to do that. There, it, But the strange thing about it, there was some resistance to that. 
but I'm offering saying, hey, I'm going to send you to training, not just in, in Minnesota, I'm going to send you training outside of uh, the state of Minnesota so you can get some other networking to see what other people are saying. Because I believe when you are in a state and you don't experience anything else, you're, you're really kind of cutting yourself short. But if you have that opportunity to do so, take advantage of it. But it was surprising that they were very reluctant to uh, to take that step to put that professional development plan together. Change is hard, no matter if it's if it's a good change that you see. Um, and so maybe it's just going to take a change process that you kind of have to put in place that has mm -hmm. different um, phases of what that looks like to get them on board. Um, you know, maybe those are one-on-ones that you may do, one-on-ones at different levels of the staff to do to really kind of explore what do they want versus yeah. maybe they feel like they have to. Um, but once they discover that it's something that actually benefits them, um, then they may be more willing. So, yeah, and especially if they haven't had that kind of um, somebody seeing the value in them for that. Yeah. 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 Hey, Ch hey, Chief Reddick, ask him who his mentor was. Or oh, is. You got one time to get it right, Virgil. Oh, golly. I have to say, you know, me and Chief Humphrey, we met uh, in 2011 when he That's came not what to I asked you. Sound like a yes. Sound like a name. That's not what I ask you. Nobody, nobody wants to so, hear about what's behind the barn and stuff, man. I ask you to share with Chief Reddick who your mentor is. Chief That's Humphrey. Easy. Chief, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Chief, you want to know who my, you want to know who my who my mentor is? They're they're not on this show. Oh, I'm just kidding. Virgil and I, we we we're really good friends, and we I think we mentor each other. As a matter of fact, I know we mentor each other. Yeah, yeah. Well, he he came into Oklahoma uh, as a chief in Norman, and and I was with the suburb uh, agency and. I sat on the executive board with our chiefs association and from day one, we clicked, uh, became really good friends and been through a lot, uh, with each other. Um, and, and so, uh, and it's good to, uh, to know, and he's a little older than I am. So, you know, that, you know, that, that, Anyway, she, you know, she's about. Yeah, I don't know what I don't know what any of that means. Yeah, she's about business, man. Come on, man. You know, well, well, well this has been a, yeah. this has been a really good show, man. It, really it has, show, man. it has, and we definitely have went over uh, our normal time. Uh, That's okay. okay, but we definitely want to thank you for taking the time out. We have a lot of people who are, who don't have a lot of questions, uh, but they're definitely listening. And so, again, it's definitely an honor to to have you on and. And I know we're both going to hopefully be able to see you in person at the Noble Conference uh, in New Orleans. And yes. uh, I, I shared with her, Keith, that we're going to try to do our podcast show from the conference uh, and just uh, meet a lot of people and get them to come on and, and talk about who they are and what they're doing with their uh, agencies across uh, the country. And Noble is a great organization. Uh, and, and so... Uh, it's good to know that you are that you've been doing a lot of good things for the national organization as well. So, so yeah. Again, thank you, and uh, yeah. uh, look forward to to seeing you again. And uh, um, if there's 
and again, hopefully this won't be your last time being on our podcast. Absolutely not. Invite me again. Um, love to. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you. And uh, everybody, make sure you tune in next Thursday at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time for, again, another informative uh, topic on You and the Law podcast show. As we will have next uh, week, we're going to have two uh, ladies on, uh, Chief Reddick, who they're the first uh, female uh, uh, chiefs for their agencies, for their in small police departments in Oklahoma. But we're going to have these two young ladies on who, you know, same with you. They got into oh. this profession and uh, they are finding their ways into, uh, into this profession. So we're going to have those two young ladies on next next Thursday. So hopefully you uh, may have some time to tune in and listen to that. I'll podcast. put it on my calendar. Yeah. Yeah. Again. So again, if you miss any parts of this uh, podcast, it will be uh, on our YouTube channel. Uh, you can definitely uh, find it on Spotify, Amazon Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can definitely type in and search You and the Law. Subscribe to us. It's free. Uh, tell your friends about it. T. Freddick, make sure you tell all your your family, your friends, your CHP buddies. Hey, this is the the best law enforcement podcast show, You and the Law podcast show. So uh, again, we want to thank everybody for tuning for tuning in tonight. And Chief Reddick, we will see you uh, soon at the Noble Conference. Absolutely, thank you both. I so appreciate you, and keep doing what you're doing. All right, thank All right, you. You're welcome. Thank you. All right, thank okay. you.